So, Lord, we just gather in your presence. Lord, we've engaged your presence in worship, and we're about to just really reflect on your word and what it has to say to us about what it means for us to live into our calling, what it means for us to live mercifully, and also, Lord, what it means for us to live in surrender. Teach us to be disciples who are not just biblically literate, but biblically obedient. Let your call live on us in contagious ways. Amen. So this week as I was reflecting on our sermon, I, I was reminded of one of my favorite stories. And, and, and that story is the story of Roxbury Holiness Camp. I'm curious, how many of you have ever been to Roxbury Holiness Camp? One, two, three. It's like the count from Sesame Street, right? How many people have heard of Roxbury Holiness Camp? Okay, so for those of you who have not heard of it, Roxbury Holiness Camp was a, a thing that happened as a result of revival. And, and, and really, it was this, this time in, in which American history as a whole was experiencing just re- revivals and spirit-led confessions in, in many new ways. And the Brethren in Christ Church were, were experiencing some of their own. And And they were in this season in the early 1900s and late 1800s where tent revivals were growing with great anticipation and expectation. And in in each one, it seemed like there were thousands more people that would come and the Holy Spirit would show up. And there were people that were being healed. And, And so they said, man, we need to find a way to turn this sense of the Spirit's presence and this act of holiness into uh, everyday life, and, and so they ended up buying an old dance club that's like out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, it's always funny when you think about Anabaptist people buying a dance club, right? And so um, they end up buying this dance club and turning it into Roxbury Holiness Camp, this place where people were to come to be uh, uh, rejuvenated, but also to experience the presence of the Lord. And in this story by E. Morris Sider, uh, he, he begins to tell the story of the camp and, and really uh, deals with a lot of the earliest years of that camp. And, and in it, he begins to tell, in this chapter he calls it Days of Revival, he begins to tell the story of many of the earliest leaders who were part of this. In this one, he's telling the story of Henry Landis, who was from Iowa, Des Moines, and uh, and he had moved out here because he was known to be a revival preacher. And I want to read, did want to read just a little bit of that chapter for you. Because I think it has some wonderful impact on what we're going to see in Jonah's story today. Before I do that, let me just say this. It would be fun if we, I was going to demonstrate this, but I don't think we will. It would be fun if I had somebody, actually Katrina, come on up here. I love putting people on the spot now. That's my thing. Just don't step on my book from the 1900s. <laughs> yes, dancing is required. It's a dance club. How would you describe me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One more. Um, you are a, a person who is a visionary. Okay. 
And if I've never seen Jeremy before, tell me how you would describe Jeremy. I don't know, Jeremy. She was able to describe me easier than she was. <laughs> I know you think. Thank you. I love putting people in a spot because that actually worked out exactly what I wanted to do. Often when we describe people to another person, it's much like that. It's physical attributes. It's characteristics. It's the things we like or hate about them. The job of a historian is to to describe somebody to an audience that's never met somebody before. Now, I can't tell you if Henry Landis is tall or small or outgoing or not, but this is what I know of Henry Landis. I don't believe I ever saw a man bring conviction on an audience like he did in those first years at Roxbury. Another witness maintained, Brother Landis could bring conviction on a person just by walking down the aisle. No words needed. The response that Landis could invoke in a revival campaign uh, became to be uh, drawn and illustrated in the report of the Evangelical Visitor, which was a Brethren in Christ magazine, and it led to a six-week revival in 1934. Said he'd go on to win the confidence and the love of his listeners until his departure, the whole student body, and they followed him to the railroad station, even into the train when he left, singing and praising God for all, and that his blessings, God's blessings, were received during the revival. The campaign began on August 4th, and no date was set for it when he showed up, and it lasted for six weeks. At the end of it, this is how they described what happened over those six weeks. There was repentance, there was confession, there was restitution. There is the destroying of the what-nots and the removal of on-becoming pictures in the lives of individuals. This guy, Henry Landis, could invoke revival without words by just walking down the aisle, right? I never saw anyone bring conviction like him. This is the words in which are used to describe this individual. This individual that has stepped fully into his call and it lives now contagiously on him. This morning we're going to see that very reality for Jonah as we begin to look at Jonah 3. And we've, we've been in a series on Jonah. This is going to be our third week and third chapter at looking at Jonah. And it's really this book that teaches us, one, how to live into our calling fully, what it means to, to accept the call that God has put on our lives, but it also means uh, to learn that God is much more merciful than we're often willing to accept, and that he often demands more surrender than we're often willing to give. In fact, that's how we've described this series. Our Jonah series is about taking four weeks to learn the complete story of Jonah, 
to realize that their God is more merciful than we're comfortable with and that God desires more surrender than we're willing to give. <clears throat> this book is much deeper than we've often given it credit for. So far in this series, we've seen that Jonah doesn't want to fulfill his ministry. He tries to make himself unavailable to God. And this is something you and I often try to do. Like, because the calling of God, this morning we were looking at Hebrews 11 in our studies, where the calling of God comes with a whole bunch of uncomfortable stuff. And a lot of times we don't even see that thing we're pushing for. And in his reluctance, Jonah uh, kind of runs away, and God orchestrates all of these events to bring Jonah back around full circle into reconciliation with his calling. And in that, uh, Jonah actually, as we saw last week, sees this big fish that swallows him as his salvation. It's the thing that saved him, that brought him back around. In the middle of that, he he prays, he surrenders himself to God, and he's finally surrendered himself to the calling of God. He's finally accepted that task that the Lord has put on him. It is now living on him in contagious ways. He is like Henry Landis, which we just read about, that it is evidently on Jonah. First week we looked at Romans eleven twenty nine as a key verse that God never changes his mind. This is really what shows up in chapter 1. He never changes his mind when he gives gifts or when he calls someone, right? I mean, it, we saw that time and time again that Jonah could not run away from God's decision. His call in his life. We asked the questions, do you know your calling? Are you making yourself available to your calling? And, and maybe what is your Nineveh? What is that place in which you have been called to proclaim? And last week as we looked at Jonah 2, as we see Jonah finally hit surrender and God uses this whale to bring him back into reconciliation with his calling, we saw this verse really lived out. This verse that Paul teaches to the church. Oh, sorry, not there yet. Sorry. That, uh, that, that 2 Samuel captures for us. And it's this, that like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises a way so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And we saw this in Jonah too. As, as the mouth of the big fish vomits Jonah out. And Jonah realizes that moment was his return. It was the thing that uh, brought him from his banishment back into the calling of God. This morning we're going to look at what it means to learn how to proclaim in our calling as we begin to look at Jonah 3. Now, in theology, there is this uh, journey that we sometimes call the call narrative. Not everyone draws it like a baseball diamond, but I'm a baseball fan, so it's easy for me to remember it's like that. I know how to hit a home run now, right? And so, uh, in the back side of your bulletin, you'll see that there is a diagram here a diamond, and I just encourage you to fill out these quadrants as we move through them. And we're going to see how these play out in Jonah. First, I noticed, I, I mentioned uh, last week that uh, really the first step is always this sense of call and through encounter, right? Moses senses God's call in a burning bush. And we can look at all the prophets and, and look at the places in which they have been called, but there's always this, this magnificent sense of 
somebody's engagement with the presence of God in which they sense the call on their life, that they understand who they are or what task is before them. And for Jonah, really, he was a prophet. He was trained to be a prophet. Second Kings tells us he was a successful prophet. He had delivered some, some messages elsewhere before. And, and with Jonah 1, we see, and the word came to Jonah. Right? He was a prophet. He knew what the word was. It was the call of God. He had an encounter with God's presence. It wasn't unfamiliar to him. And that's really the step one here in the call narrative of, of our theological understanding. And, and the next thing that really happens then with everyone is this sense of objection and resistance. There's this, always this, this questioning, right? You know, God, uh, really not good enough. I mean, my... My friend Aaron, my brother, he's, he, he can speak real good, you know. Uh, you probably want him. I, I stutter. Uh. And so every prophet or every person experience calls goes through this wrestling, right? Jonah, is pretty, I mean, uh, Jeremiah pretty much begs God to take the call off his life. Like, I can't do it. I'm not worthy, right? So we see this sense that always there's this objection to the call. We saw this in Jonah one, where Jonah's like, I'm not sure I really want that for that town. I don't know if I want Nineveh to be rescued. I'm not sure I want to make myself available to that call of God. And he runs away from it. Then there's this, this section that uh, we, and these are my words, every theologian uses different words to describe, but there's this sense of reassurance of identity and standing. Some people just say here, it's just reassurance. It's this, this sense that this is who you are. And we saw this last week. Jonah's in the middle of a whale, right? He's, or fish, whatever he's in the middle of. He's praying. He's, he just confesses to God, I get it. I know who you are. I know I stepped outside of your love. Like, oh, man, did I mess up. And, and in that, somehow he's reassured of his identity. He's reassured of what he's been called to do. And the next step is finally this confidence of mi and mission. It's like this idea that we finally have reconciled with that thing that God has put on our lives. That, yes, that's exactly what I'm supposed to do. That, that is what I need to step into. That's who I was created to be. You're right. I mean, that first thing you try to tell me, I get it now. Like, it takes this whole uh, journey. But I think if most of us would look at the callings that we've experienced in life, we could experience the same kind of trap. I remember the first time that uh, I had been back in the church just for a few months, and, and when Jerry said, hey, I think you'd make a good leader, a good pastor, uh, I would say that this was here. And at this point, I kind of just got mad at him. I was like, no, that's not me. I don't even know if I want to be back in this thing. Whenever we sense call, our first instinct for some reason in our humanity is to push it off, to say, nope, I'm not strong enough, I'm not confident enough, I'm not smart enough. I don't speak well enough. I'm not organized enough. And you know what's funny? What I have sensed in life, I don't know if this is true or not, but what I have sensed is that usually the thing that we're willing to step into really isn't our calling, but that's where we end up filling our time in the church. The places where we serve best are the places we doubt our presence, but others tell us you would be good at that. Right? Hey, you'd be good at greeting. You know what? I don't like people enough. That's not good. You'd be good at preaching. Well, I'm an introvert and I'm too shy. 
usually those places are actually the journey God's inviting us on. Well, this week as we look at Jonah 3, I think we're going to see this verse really play out. This verse that Paul teaches to his church in Corinth, his church is struggling, and he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, right? Understand your identity. I'm reassuring who you are. I'm reassuring that call on your life. And let nothing move you. Stay there. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Step into task and mission. Live into what you've been created to be. And then trust this. Always know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That whatever you do, whether you feel that you're confident in it or not, it is not in vain that God is using it. And I think as we look at Jonah Jonah 3 this week, we're going to see this lens really makes sense for us. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Jonah 3, 1 through 10. I will also have it on the screen overhead. But I encourage you also to commit this week to this verse as, as part of your devotions. Like this is something to focus on this week. Because I think there's a lot of richness in here that we won't get to today as well. Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Then the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now I love that God doesn't give up. What we see here is that Jonah gets the exact same word of the Lord, the exact same calling a second time. God is not giving up. In fact, it looks exactly like it does the first time. You need to go to Nineveh. You need to proclaim. And so I kind of picture this whole journey in which journey uh, that Noah's been on, I mean, jeez, uh, Jonah's been on, that, that triangle, right? Like, I just picture God kind of sitting there going, it's me, Jonah. It's me, Jonah. It's me, Jonah. You like, that? you like that fish? It's me, Jonah. Come on, Jonah. It's this constant just, I'm here. This is who you were created to be. And, and, and here we see it again, right? It comes a second time. Go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim. Do that message I gave you the last time. However, we see something else that we looked at the first week. We don't only have to be literally, biblically literate. We have to be biblically obedient. And here... We see that because what did Jonah do? Jonah finally obeyed the word of the Lord, right? Up to that point, he was not in obedience. Jonah shows up in a town, which is uh, the capital of Assyria. And, and really at this time, there is no other town like Nineveh. And I'm, I'm not just talking about the weirdness of the violence that they did. Remember, they were like popping people's arms and legs off like it, it wasn't just the violence that made them wicked. It wasn't just these huge mounds of human heads and skeletons that they kept in town. What made it interesting was that it was huge. It was the first empire. It was, it was really this, this first city that had expanded. I mean, they've been doing archaeological digs on this thing for years, and they're finding this thing to be miles and miles long and, and full of shops. And it really was the city that made much of the world tick. In fact, it's so big that we see that uh, it would take at least three days to walk through the city. That's a long time, first of all, to be walking through a town as violent as Nineveh. 
Now, it, most of us can make it through Lancaster Walkit and probably, uh, let's see, I have walked the whole city from the train station down. We could probably do it in 30 to 40 minutes. It's not that big of a city. But there's certain parts of the city where most of us uh, who have never lived in a city avoid, right? It's those places where, like, all people lock their door when they're driving through, like, right? Like, Katie and I were in Baltimore yesterday, and I kind of thought about this with Nineveh, as, like, all the homeless people were walking up and down the streets, like, asking for money, walking in between cars. Many of us do what? Right? Because we're on shore of it. None of that is comparable to how evil, how dirty, how populated, and how really uh, cruel Nineveh was. It was this town in which even the city walls were graffitied or featured statues of their violent conquest. I mean, you could not walk five feet into the city without smelling death, without experiencing violence, without seeing the celebrations of violence all around the town. Jonah's walked already one-third his way through that city. He's already stepped foot uncomfortably one day into it. And the whole time, he's proclaiming. He's been speaking this message that God has given him. The call of God is on him. He's been proclaiming it since the start of his acceptance. He is walking through the city. He's only one-third way. And it's obvious the message in which he's carrying in this uneasy place is an uneasy message. I don't know about you, but how many of us want to be a prophet like that? How many of us want to have to walk through a town that crazy going, God's going to die if you don't turn it around, right? I mean, that's like the worst message. You're, you're obviously outnumbered by a bunch of big violent guys. And, and you're sit there, sitting there preaching a message of doom. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is this story of Jeremiah the prophet and this other prophet named uh, Hananiah. You guys know the story? So Jeremiah is, is preaching. He says, hey guys, turn yourselves around. Israel, you got to listen. You've been listening to the wrong prophets. And he puts this yoke on his back and he's like, this is what's going to happen with you guys. You're going to be under the weight of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. You're going to be taken over. You're going to be slaves. And all of a sudden, Hananiah comes up and he's like, whoa, God just told me that everything's going to be okay. I mean, the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar stole, he's going to bring it back and uh, we're going to live in peace. In fact, he's going to break the yoke of slavery and he walks up to Jeremiah and he, and he grabs the yoke off his back and symbolically snaps it in half on his knee and, and lets it sit there. And Jeremiah sits there with open hands and says, maybe so, I hope you're right. I hope you're right, but, you know, the test of those who preach peace is if it comes into completion or not. Jonah has got a hard message to carry. Most of us want to be people that carry the message of peace story of Hananiah is that Hananiah was speaking not for God. He died shortly after making that false claim. Jonah has to walk carrying this message of death through a town of death. Man, that's a hard thing to get through our heads. 
the Ninevites believed God as a result. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on a sackcloth. And, and when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, a sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Or if you have the King James, it says, in ash. That is what the proclamation, he, and then this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the degree of the king and his nobles. And we're going to look at that in a minute. So one third into the city. And what do we see? The Ninevites believed God. That's amazing. That is amazing. One third way through. He has not even reached half of the population. And we see this confession that the Ninevites believed God. It's a wicked town. And all it took was one scared, judgmental, reluctant dude to step into his calling and literally just to begin to proclaim it. He didn't even have to reach the whole city to be heard. It's exactly what we read about with that Henry Landis guy, right? He could walk down an aisle. And lead people to conviction without opening his words, without saying anything. When we step into the calling of God, we already begin to see that there's this contagious aspect to it. That that it lives on us. It is inevitably going to stick to others when we live into it. And really, this is where that verse begins to make sense. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not... Jonah finally steps in, and his labor is far from in vain. One-third of the way through, and the Ninevites begin to confess. In fact, it reaches the word of the king, and he takes off his royal robes. He puts on sackcloth, which would have been symbolic of, of lament and funerals. And he covers himself in the earth. He covers himself with either ashes of a burnt suffer, uh, uh, sacrifice or the dirt to show that he is below everything. He is, he is humbly submitting. He's experiencing what we might say personal confession or personal sorrow. And, and now he's going to lead people into a communal confession. So by the degree of the king and his, uh, that did not work out there, and his nobles, Uh, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But the people and the animals should be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, says the king. God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so that we will not. Now, I love this, because not only has the king heard it, not only has he believed, uh, not only has the Ninevites turned because of the way that the contagious call of God is on Jonah, but now he's issuing by proclamation, in response to the proclamation of Jonah, that we need to live into this communal confession. And I think there's some great significance here to teach us on communal confession, of us repenting of Things that as a community we've done wrong. And that's not what we're going this morning. I'm just saying, man, there's some rich stuff here, I think, for us to step into that uh, at some point. But in this, we see that he demands the whole town to follow his 
example. In fact, not even just the citizens, but also what? The animals. So if we were practicing communal confession, would we all have to go home and put sackcloth on our dogs and our cats and our goldfish? You know, that'd be a little weird. But, but we see this thing that he demands that even the animals shouldn't eat. Everyone needs to start fasting. Everyone needs to take off the things that define them. They need to begin a process of lament, of loss, uh, and begin this process of dying or covering themselves with the earth. These symbolic representations that they need to begin to wrestle and die with who they are. And he commands or proclaims that they turn away from their violence. Now, if we had to describe Nineveh, and we lived in those times, all we would describe Nineveh as, as mean, violent, bloody, oppressive. The thing that defines them, the king who loves it, who hangs up statues around town and plaques celebrating how evil he is, who made historians rewrite history to show him even bloodier, all of a sudden says, whoa, wait a minute, that thing we do, stop it, because, oh man, this is real. If we don't turn, uh, something's going to happen. And, and hopefully if we give it up, uh, God will change his mind. Now, I love that because he has no hope from Jonah that God will change his mind. What's Jonah's message? Repent. You've been judged. God's hand of judgment is on you. He says, though, perhaps if we confess, God will change his mind. When God saw that they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, I'm just going to tell you, this verse brings some real tension for me. In fact, if you read it in the King James, it says that God repented, repented of the violence he was going to bring on them. How does that fit our theology? How does that fit? Does God change his mind? Does he repent of his own actions? Does he relent of his own actions? So this week I spent some time really focusing on this crazy verse. And, and as I looked at it, what it really says is it's a, it's a word that is full of emotion. Not necessarily the act of repentance like I need to confess because I've done something wrong to you. Or I need to relent because I'm being a bully to you. It's this idea that he was moved by compassion. It's the story of God, actually. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? For God so loved the world. That is compassion. It's exactly what we see happening here. Hey, guys, stop the violence. We need to change. Wow, man, they, these guys really, they got a 360 on me. I feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for them. They're my creation. I love them. I'm going to give them another chance. This is what this passage is saying. For God so loved the world that he decided to take his judgment from them and allow them a little bit more time. Chapter 3 alone is a crazy story. But I think every chapter in Jonah has just been full of some drama. 
This reluctant prophet finally accepts his calling. He turns a whole city in his reluctance into both personal and communal repentance at the drop of only a few words, only being one-third into the city. Now, just imagine just a few of us would step into our calling, and we walk just one-third of the way through our city, so about the Hating Zug or maybe Wawa, and the whole town just began to weep, to confess, to begin to say, yes, God is it. Because the thing you need to understand is it says they began to call urgently on God. The word for God there is El Elhim. The only name God says that he goes by, the one or the true God. They began to not call out to their gods. They called out Elohim. They called out on the one true God. So if we would step into our calling and just walk the wall off, can you imagine what the fruit of this would be? But in fact, it doesn't need a whole church or just a few of us to do it. Because how many people went with Jonah? What if this one of us could step into our calling in such a way that it contagiously lived on us, it confidently lived on us, that if we'd walked a wall, wall, the whole town would be moved into an almost sense of, this is it, we're dying. We need to die to who we are. We need to see El Hohim. We need to praise God for who he is. Because, folks, that is what the story of Jonah is. It's a story of somebody who the call of God lived on him once he finally accepted it and he lived into it. It's the story like I read here that says, I don't believe I ever saw a man bring conviction on an audience like he did in those first years at Roxbury. Brother Landis could bring conviction on a person just by walking down the aisle. There was nothing that man did that brought conviction. Maybe he was a good communicator, I don't know. But he didn't need his words. What he needed was the calling of God to be contagiously and confidently on his life. Often we don't have that kind of faith, but maybe it's because we're not living into that type of calling. It wasn't a community that turned the whole town upside down. It was one man. I want to live into a faith like that, don't you? I want to I see that kind of calling here. That's what I want to pursue. Do you? Man, what would the fruit be if we all did it? All of Lancaster County? All of Pennsylvania? We really see this verse makes sense now. Therefore, my brothers and sisters. Can we just make sure you understand that part? Brothers and. Brothers and. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that you labor, your labor in the Lord is not vain. If I was writing to this church, maybe I wouldn't say brothers and sisters, but maybe I'd say young and, young and, don't do anything but stand firm in your call. Let nothing move you. Right? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I think there's a few notes that we can take away from this passage on what it means for us to step into our calling and learn to proclaim in contagious ways. And, and on the back side of your bulletin, you'll see some underlines, and we're going to move through those uh, pretty quickly this morning. 
The first one is obvious. When we live empowered by our call, we step into the confidence of our identity. When we live empowered by who we are, we live into the confidence of our identity. And when we do that, when we understand what it means to live empowered, I think there's three things that happen to us as we look at Jonah. One, the authority of our call becomes undeniable. The authority of our call becomes undeniable. How did they describe Brother Landis? As somebody who could bring conviction without even words. The authority of our call becomes undeniable. And secondly, the calling of our our life produces contagious fruit, right? Jonah's one-third of the way through the city, and the whole town, even the animals, are moved to repentance. The calling of our life, when we live in the confidence and the authority of our calling produces contagious fruit. And the third one that happens there when we live empowered is calling proclaims the need for repentance and realignment to those around us. We live in an era where people really want happy sermons. They want happy books. They want happy devotionals. We want to find our uh, fulfillment in life. Jonah's message, a message that came from God, Jeremiah, the message that came from God, is not how to be rich by the time you're 30. It's not, you know, tie the little extra and get your money back uh, if it doesn't work for you. It's not this message that when you give yourself in a commitment to the church, you're going to find more of who you are. It is a message of repentance. And when we live into that reality, when we read the scriptures and constantly are finding ways to prophetically repent of the things that are convicted in us, it will also cause those around us who engage us to remove themselves into repentance. In fact, I think Nineveh models a method of repentance for us. That is to strip away what encases us, the royal robes, to fast from the things that define us, violence, or for a cow, grass, to live humbly into submission. I wasn't calling anyone a cow if you eat grass, I was saying because the animals had a sacrifice, right? To fast from the things that define us, to live humbly into submission and dying to self. Put on the cloth. Get down and begin to get ready for death. The earth is on you. It's a matter of preparing to die to yourself. Folks, calling not only shapes us, but also the way we help others invite, uh, encounter God, experience healing, and a place to belong, and in fully becoming lovers of God. It will not just be a message for us, but it, when we step into our calling. It shapes the way we invite others to encounter God, to experience, how we invite others to experience healing. And it invites others to be fully equipped lovers of God. As the worship team comes forward, as we begin to wrestle with where we're at on that triangle, that, that kind of understanding of, you know, where am I on this triangle? Do I understand my calling, right? Do I have objection and resistance? Do I need reassurance or do I have confidence of mission? As we think about that, I really think there are three questions for us to consider this morning. So I invite you to stand with me as the worship team prepares. And I want to leave you with these three questions. 
I think for some of us this morning, perhaps we need to ask God to send the Holy Spirit to empower you with confidence in your calling. And maybe some of you, uh, the Lord is asking you to trust Him that the hard work you are doing, the calling you are living into, is not pointless. And others might be sensing that the Lord is moving them into this model of confession that Nineveh models for us. A stripping away of everything that's defined them up to now. Learning to fast from things that make them who they are. Falling into submission either to God or to a task he's given you. And learning to die to self. So if one of those applies for you, I encourage you to think about that and reflect on that as we close out in song.